You are listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, a weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 13. Hey there, folks. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can learn more about me at my website, chrislester.org. There you can find my blog, this podcast, and information about how to hire me as a narrator, voice actor, or producer for your own audio fiction. If you want to catch up on my past work, check out the archives of the Metamore City podcast at www.metamorecity.com. That's M-E-T-A-M-O-R-City.com. There are more than 50 episodes there, waiting for your listening enjoyment. If you haven't listened to episode 12 yet, I urge you to go back and check it out first, so that you can get the first part of today's story. Today I'm bringing you part two of The Cuckoo, a novella set in the world of Metamore City. In the first part of this story we were introduced to John, an incubus who was kicked out of the noble house he grew up in when his true parentage was discovered. Now John impersonates members of the nobility while feeding off them in secret. At a winter ball, John makes the acquaintance of one Baronessa Delilah Velasco de Moraine, a shy and introverted noblewoman from Torn, who recently married into a local noble house. Delilah's husband is deeply involved in Senate politics, and has little time for his new bride, leaving her alone and overwhelmed amidst the unfamiliar customs of the Metamorian peerage. After dancing with Delilah in a show-stopping tango, John convinces her to take him on as her dance instructor and etiquette coach, to help her navigate the rules of the new society in which she finds herself. Fair warning, this story contains adult language and strong sexual content. Listener discretion is advised. The Cuckoo by Chris Lester Part 2 After the ball, I returned to John Tiffrey's apartment, deposited his clothes in the hamper, and resumed my role as the pretty young blonde he'd brought home yesterday. He woke up the next morning, thinking I'd been there the entire night. After another pleasant romp in the sack to recharge the metaphysical batteries, I got cleaned up and went back to the local temple of the Church of Hedonism. Home is where you keep your stuff when you're not using it, so I guess the temple qualifies. I went in the back door to the priest's quarters— stripped off my clothes, and deposited them in one of the hampers. They would be cleaned and put back in the communal closets, where we kept a wide array of outfits to match the different forms we might have to shapeshift into. Within the temple itself, there was no need for clothing. I changed back into my true form, a hundred and eighty centimeters of lean, sculpted masculinity, with yellow eyes, ruddy skin, and jet-black hair, I didn't have the cloven feet that people often associate with Daedra, but I did sport a large pair of curving ram's horns, and a prehensile tail with a spade-shaped tip. We can do these big bat-like wings, too, but they're awkward and heavy when we're just walking around, so I usually don't bother. I checked in with Jasmine, the head priestess, 
and reported on the evening's events with both Tiffrey and Delilah. Then I grabbed a notebook computer and sat down in the mess hall to do some research over breakfast. Right now, I imagine some of you are wondering how we could openly build an organized religion around hedonism. Well, I'm glad you asked. Just follow the bouncing dogma. In the beginning was the great maker, and she, or he, or it, was all that existed. This was bad, because the maker hungered for experiences and perspective to give its existence meaning. That's pretty hard to do when there's nothing to experience, and no one else to give you a different point of view. So the maker created the universe out of itself, dividing its essence into a billion trillion fragments in order to spread the divine spark throughout the cosmos. Now, all of those fragments represented different parts of the maker's personality, or what we would call a personality if the maker had had anyone to interact with. One of the larger, stronger fragments became the Lady Suspira, the queen of Daedra, an ancestor of all incubi and succubi. Suspira was the embodiment of what we call the hedonist principle, the part of the maker that hungered to experience pleasure in all its myriad forms. The incubi and succubi, as Suspira's descendants, each carry a piece of her divine spark within us. The Church of Hedonism is one of the many universalist faiths, all of which hold to the same basic story but focus on different fragments of the great maker. All of these churches teach that mortals carry a piece of the divine spark inside themselves, an inner nature that reflects a particular aspect of the great maker. Enlightenment comes when you become one with that inner nature, embodying it as perfectly as you can within the confines of a mortal life. That way, when you die, the spark within you will understand itself and rejoin with the other pieces of the great maker that are most like itself. Eventually, when everyone has achieved enlightenment, the maker will finally understand itself completely and the universe will be reborn as a perfect expression of the way things ought to be. <laughs> hey, it could be true. And if it is, that's really convenient, because it means that some mortals can achieve their eternal purpose just by having a good time. Oh, yes, and it means that they can partake of the divine nature by having sex with the incubi and succubi who serve as the priests and priestesses of the church. And if they consent to having children with us, well, that's just about the holiest thing of all, because it means that their bloodline will be mixed with the essence of the pleasure goddess herself. And if it keeps us fed, gives power to Lady Suspira, and provides us with the means to reproduce ourselves, well, that just works out well for everybody, doesn't it? Like I said, it's a good story. But I've never been too big on the organized side of religion. Officiating services and leading orgies with the same group of disciples week after week is, well, boring. It's preaching to the converted. Our high priestess understands that, so she sends me out to find the prospective candidates who might never consider Suspira's message if they didn't have somebody to teach them. They might not listen if I showed up as an incubus, but if I seem to be a regular guy and teach by example, then I've got a chance. It's a good gig. I like to call it my undercover missionary work, but it does require a little bit of prep time. I pulled up everything I could find on Baron Vincent Moraine and his lovely wife. The Baron was a classic social climber, more concerned with respect and power than anything else. He had some family businesses, which ran best when he kept his hands off of them, and some favorite charities, strategically located in the domains of certain key noble houses. But when it came to the carnal side of life, the church had no records on him at all. 
He could have been an ecclesiast monk for all the interest he'd shown in the fairer sex, nor had he shown any evidence of more masculine tastes. His first and only love, as far as anyone could tell, was the political arena. The Metamorian Senate is a two-tiered structure, with 400 common seats and 100 peer seats. The commoners have their election, and the nobles have theirs, and together they make up the highest elected body in Metamor. The outer provinces have their own legislatures, and their own means of choosing them. But in Metamor proper, the only voters Moraine had to win over were the other members of the peerage. On the one hand, that meant that he could focus his efforts on a relatively small number of people. On the other hand, the people he did have to win over were very hard to impress. Moraine was going to have to convince them that they could advance their own house's prospects by allying themselves with his. In light of that, the Baron's recent marriage made more sense. House Velasco is one of the most powerful families in the province of Torn, with four grand lordships and a net worth of over two billion marks. Delilah was the eldest child of the Duke of Tornamere. Traditionally, the duchy would have passed to her younger brother, but there was a bill making its way through the Tornish Parliament that would abolish male preference in the chain of succession. Baron Moraine must have known something was in the works, because the wedding happened barely two weeks before the bill was announced. It was a stunning bit of maneuver, but I suspected that Delilah was feeling rather used. Gods, no wonder she hated politics. I brought my findings back to Jasmine. You're right, she said, her cat-like eyes gleaming. This is a tremendous opportunity. I want you to focus all your efforts on winning her over. Just what I had in mind, I said. As I turned to go, she called out to me. John? I turned around. Her expression was uncharacteristically grim. We can't afford to incur the wrath of the Moraines and the Velascos, she said. If you screw this one up, we'll have to disavow any knowledge of your actions. Be careful. I snorted, nodded once, and headed for the door. Always did love a challenge. I showed my card to the security personnel at Moraine Tower. After getting approval from upstairs, they unlocked the lift controls and gave me a ride up to the penthouse suite. I was met at the entry hall by a distinguished-looking butler in his late fifties. He had pale skin, bone-white hair, and azure-blue eyes. His nostrils flared as I stepped out of the lift, and his eyes lit up like a pair of pilot lights. Damn it, of all the luck, why did the butler have to be a freaking ASMR? Suppressing my fear, I handed him my card and bowed, stiffly. Jonathan Vance, at your service. I have a one o'clock appointment with Baronessa Delilah Velasco de Moraine. The butler examined my card, completely unimpressed. He glowered up at the guard in the lift. He has been searched, he said, his voice tinged with a distinct Brecklander accent. Yes, sir, the guard said. One amulet. Obediently, I opened the top two buttons of my shirt and spread it open to reveal the fertility suppression amulet. Lots of single men wear them but it's doubly important for us incubi, since our sperm are so hardy that pregnancy is practically guaranteed. Even standard-issue birth control charms are useless against us. Mine is the extra-strength version, and I still burn through them about once a month. I smiled blandly. Never leave home without it. The butler harumphed. Dance instructor, eh? And what sort of dancing do you do, Mr. Vance? Oh, I'm very versatile, 
I assured him. Classical, folk, and urban styles from half a dozen provinces. The Baronessa was particularly interested in learning the traditional ballroom dances of Metamore. My smile went tight-lipped. Speaking of which, you are now cutting into her instruction time. The butler's eyes narrowed, but before he could speak, Delilah's voice came echoing down the hall. Gerhard, has my guest arrived? The ASMR stiffened as Delilah came out into the hall. She was dressed in a white unitard that showed off her lean, athletic frame, and her hair was pulled back in a ponytail. She was barefoot, and as such, she seemed a few centimeters shorter than when I had first met her. None of it detracted from her beauty in the slightest. She ignored the butler and faced me directly. Good day to you, Mr. Vance. I bowed deeply. Good day, my lady. Are you ready to begin? At once. The exercise room is this way. Please follow me. She led me to a truly beautiful private gym, with a variety of exercise equipment and a large expanse of hardwood flooring that was clearly intended as a dance floor. The room was lit by skylights and had mirrors along the length of one wall, giving a very bright, open feeling. Small, unobtrusive speakers were mounted at regular intervals across the ceiling. I like the new look, Delilah said once we were behind closed doors. Is that the real you? I caught my reflection in the mirror. My skin was lightly tanned, my eyes were hazel, and I obviously didn't have my horns or my tail, but other than that I looked pretty much like myself. Close enough, I said. A few minor cosmetic changes for vanity's sake. I think your butler might have smelled them and suspected foul play. Delilah sighed. I apologize for Gerhard. He's a good worker, but perhaps overly suspicious. Or maybe just suspicious enough, I thought, but didn't say. I forced a smile. Well, no harm done. Shall we begin with a few warm-up exercises? I spent the next three hours giving Delilah an overview of the quadrille, the most complex of the four major dances practiced in Metamore's high society. Along the way, I worked in lessons on etiquette and protocol, and some of the more dangerous cultural landmines that she might be expected to run across. Delilah was a quick learner, obviously intelligent and eager, and the hours passed swiftly. I stayed on my best behavior, keeping my aura locked down as tightly as possible. I wasn't taking any chances with that butler around. Asimar can smell a dangerous influence like a shark smells blood. At one point, Gerhard barged in on us, making profound apologies for the interruption, but explaining that he must have Delilah's signature on something. He seemed almost disappointed when he saw that I really was teaching her how to dance. Our time was up far too soon, but we made arrangements to meet again in two days' time. I was back in the entry hall and waiting for the lift when Gerhard accosted me. "'I am watching you, Mr. Vance,' he said, his tone low and dangerous. "'You may fool my mistress, but not me. I can smell the stink of Daedra on you.' "'That's true,' I admitted, "'just as I can smell the celestial on you.' I put on a weary, careworn expression. "'I can't choose my heritage, Gerhard.' All I can do is endeavor not to let it control me. The lift doors opened and I stepped inside. Gerhard put his hand on the door to keep it from closing. And why should I believe that you can rise above your nature? I smirked at him. How can you not? 
After all, you're part angel, and you've clearly done a fine job of overcoming that. He drew back his hand as if stung, the color rising into his pale cheeks. I winked at him, then pushed the button that closed the doors. Gerhard's presence at Marine Tower required me to be more subtle than I usually prefer. For the first few weeks, I kept all my interactions with Delilah strictly professional, as I continued schooling her in the ways of the Metamore peerage. On my third visit, I had a stroke of inspiration, and had Delilah summon both Gerhard and the maid to meet us in the gym. The quadrille depends on two couples dancing together, I explained. It's almost impossible to teach it with only two people. Are both of you familiar with the dance? Gerhard nodded stiffly. The maid, a pretty twenty-something from Lanton, was more enthusiastic. Oui, monsieur, she said, beaming. The quadrille was invented in Lanton. She laughed. I know it like my mother's smile. Magnifique, I said. What is your name, my dear? She curtsied. Isabel, monsieur. Well, Isabel, I shall be most indebted to you for your experience. You and Gerhard will work with me to teach your mistress the quadrille. I looked over at Delilah. Assuming that meets with your approval, my lady. Delilah smiled knowingly. It does, she said. Gerhard looked like he'd just swallowed something unpleasant. Mistress, our duties. Can wait for a few hours, Delilah said. Come now, Gerhard. You will be doing me a great service. Reluctantly, he bowed. As you wish, my lady. For all his personality defects, Gerhard was quite a good dancer. Having him and Isabel there made the lesson much more productive, while also making it impossible for the butler to say I was up to any mischief. It worked so well, in fact, that I had them do it again. And again. By the end of the second week, Gerhard had given up trying to catch me in something and started looking for excuses to be away from the penthouse when I showed up. This, of course, served my interests perfectly. Isabel seemed disappointed when she informed us that Gerhard would be unavailable. She'd been enjoying our lessons immensely, and she blushed whenever we switched partners and she found herself in my arms. Magnanimous fellow that I am, I let her join us as I introduced Delilah to the fast waltz, using her as a model to show her mistress the steps and figures. I switched back and forth between the two women over the course of the lesson, until all of us had worked up a good sweat. At the end, because Isabel begged for it, Delilah and I demonstrated the tango for her. The Baronessa was even more passionate and sultry than she had been at the winter ball, and my aura flowed outward in response to her, amplifying the sexual energy in the room. By the time we finished, Isabel was breathing harder than either of us. Delilah stepped back out of my embrace and took a deep breath. Well, that was invigorating. Thank you, John. I bowed to her. Thank you, my lady. She wiped the sweat from her brow. I am going to bathe, I think. If you wish, you may use the servant shower before you leave. Isabel, will you see that Mr. Vance is cared for? Isabel curtsied. With pleasure, madame. Very good. Delilah hesitated, as if she were going to say something else, then gave me a brief nod. Until next time, Mr. Vance. She left us then, heading for the master suite. Isabel took my hand and gave it a gentle tug. Right this way, Monsieur Vance. 
The servants' bathroom was furnished simply but well, with white marble tiles, ample counter space, and a large shower stall with a bench and a handrail, which may have been intended for Gerhard. Isabel showed me how to operate the shower and where to find the towels and washcloths. I thanked her for her help and turned my back on her as I began unbuttoning my shirt. I heard the bathroom door shut behind me. A moment later, I felt her body press against me, and I saw her hands reaching around to help me with my buttons. Was there something else, Isabel? I asked, the amusement showing in my voice. I felt her breath on my ear. Mistress said to be sure you were cared for. She took my earlobe into her mouth and nibbled on it, as she reached up and ran her hands over my bare chest. I must do my job well. And boy was she ever. I could feel myself getting hard already. I allowed her to pull off my shirt. Well then, I said, I wouldn't want you to get in trouble. She spun me around and pressed me up against the wall, kissing me hard on the lips. Then you must tell me when you feel I have cared for you enough. I smiled and helped her pull off her dress. Keep going, I said. You'll know when I'm ready for you to stop. A bathroom isn't my favorite place in the world to have sex, but it does have the benefit of easy cleanup. Isabel and I took advantage of this, and by the time we were both washed and dressed, there was nothing left behind to tell Gerhard of our activities. Before we left the servant's wing, Isabel pulled me in for one more deep kiss. I may not be the smartest dager in the world, but I know how to turn an opportunity to my advantage. As Isabel kissed me, I stretched out my power to her, wrapping it around that place in her psyche where animal attraction lives. I gave her a nudge, subtly loosening her inhibitions, what was left of them, anyway, whispering into her ear, I need your help, Isabel. Will you help me? Oui, Monsieur John, anything. I kissed her gently behind the ear. Your mistress is trapped in a life without love, without joy. I'm going to free her. She let out a little moan of delight. Ah, oui, you must, monsieur, you must. She is so sad. And beautiful, I said. Oh, certainement, she agreed. I gave her psyche another nudge. You want to make love to her, don't you? You dream of burying your head between those strong, shapely thighs, making her cry out in pleasure. I, I do, she cried. I do dream of it. Oh, monsieur, she is my mistress. What shall I do? I put my finger to her lips. Don't worry, Isabel. This is good. I will not be with her forever. And when I am gone, you will need to be there to help bring joy to her life. For now, just be available to her. Watch for your opportunity. When she is ready, she will come to you. She kissed my fingertip and pulled it away from her mouth. How do you know? I grinned and placed a light kiss on her forehead. I'll take care of it. Just promise that you'll help me keep Gerhard from finding out about this. She nodded soberly. I will. I can keep Gerhard busy so you will have more time with the mistress. Perfect, I said, heading for the door. Uh, just don't try to divert him the way you just diverted me. The poor man's heart probably couldn't take it.
And that's the end of part two, folks. What will John and Isabel do next? And how will it affect Delilah? And what's Gerhard going to do about it? Find out next week. Now it's time for the weekly writing report. Every week, my goals are to write for at least six hours, and to write at least 350 words per day. This week, I wrote 3,959 words in 5.25 hours, for an average writing speed of 754 words per hour. Overall, in the month of July, I wrote 19,722 words over 31 days, averaging 636 words per day. That's a decrease from June, when I managed over 24,000 words in 30 days. On the other hand, I got a lot more efficient about my writing time. While the number of words I wrote in the month dropped by 20% compared to June, the amount of time I spent writing those words dropped by 37%, from about 37 hours to 23 hours. So in other words, I got a lot more bang for the buck from the time that I did spend writing. Even so, I'm hoping to get my writing time back up during the month of August. And now, the feedback. Hey Chris, it's Sarah Testarossa. I uh, listened to your interview with Jim Morris and Philippa Valentine the other day. I found it really interesting. Thank you for sharing, especially because, you know, I'm one of those people who isn't yet published and wants to learn more about those things in terms of, like, the pros and cons of each. I mean, I know lots of authors, and I'm very, very close friends with someone who's been published. I don't know whether her publisher would be considered small press or big press because it has some of the things that he and Pip had mentioned about small presses and some of the things about big presses. So... Dream Spinner Press is, I'm pretty sure, the largest publisher of male-male romance. That's pretty much what they specialize in, although they have two other imprints. So they have things of the big press in terms of translations. They have the audiobooks. But then they have some of the things that Pip and T were talking about being good about small press. For example, cover art. Basically, there's a lot of steps to it, and the author gets a good amount of say, and I think that's really cool. I just don't know what that kind of company is considered and how rare that is. I thought they were somewhere in the middle between small press and, like, big press. Hey, Sarah. When folks in the publishing industry talk about big press, there are only five companies they're talking about. Those are Georg von Holzbrink, which is based in Germany and goes by Macmillan in the U.S., Hachette, which is French, Penguin Random House, which is British, and HarperCollins and Simon & Schuster, both of which are based in New York. The three European imprints all have offices in New York as well, so in the U.S., big press is often referred to as New York Publishing. Now, each of those companies has lots and lots of imprints, so you'll see a lot more names than that in the bookstore. But when you follow the money, that's it. That's all there is. Dream Spinner Press, which you referred to, is an independent press that was started in 2007. They aren't connected to any of the big five, so even though they publish a lot of books and have a lot of sales for their genre, they aren't the sort of generalist mass-market leviathan that the big five are. Generally speaking, independent presses tend to be specialized in a certain niche market, something that the big five might publish but aren't going to make a priority. Romance and erotica are often a market where independent presses flourish, The biggest romance publisher in the world, Harlequin Press, was an independent press until HarperCollins bought them in 2014. 
Now, obviously, independent presses can vary a lot in size, from ebook-only imprints with just a few authors to companies with hundreds of titles. A bigger small press, like DreamSpinner, probably has the resources to do things that a smaller one can't. I think the key here is to ask questions so that you know what you can and can't expect from your prospective publishers. Definitely. It's interesting to hear more about self-publishing because I hear a lot about it, but I, most of the people I hear about it from do not have much success with it. But then again, they also aren't necessarily published by presses as well. But anyway, if I find people who are considering what to do in terms of publications, I definitely can point them to that podcast. Definitely cool to have that interview. Having an established name out there in big publishing does feel like it could be a big help on the self-publishing side. Some of the most successful self-published authors I know are also published with established imprints of one size or another. These are the folks who call themselves hybrid authors. But there does seem to be a lot of variation in how people find success, or don't, as the case may be. If there's a magic bullet, I don't think anyone has found it. I agree. I knew that if I was going to show what life was like for a creature like John, it would have to be from the inside, because he's essentially a manipulator. Plus, I think John's character arc in this story is going to have a lot more impact when you see it from his perspective. It's definitely intriguing, and it actually kind of reminded me of, um, it was Jenna was the succubus in Trouble Minds. I remember how in that, like, Abby was realizing, like, how, oh, Jenna must be a full-blooded substance because blah, 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 lineage. And so it's kind of harkening back to that. And, I mean, that's really my my favorite of your short stories, I think. So, I don't know. I always like remembering that one because it's awesome. Yes, Jenna was the name of the succubus in Troubled Minds. And, like John, she was the child of an incubus. It was actually writing about Jenna's character that it inspired me to write a story about the kind of character her father might have been. John isn't Jenna's father, but he's cut from the same sort of cloth, and I thought an inside look at the moral and ethical worldview of that sort of being would be interesting. On Twitter, Azure Jade says, Finished flying free, crying while putting away dishes. Thanks a lot, you magnificent bastard. Actually, thanks. That was lovely. You're welcome. I do love giving people the feels. If you'd like to voice your thoughts on the show, send your message in text or mp3 audio to metamorcityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, call area code 641-715-3900, and then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash author Chris Lester, and on Twitter as Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. My blog is at chrislester.org. To participate in discussion with other fans, join the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group, or the discussion forums at metamorecity.freeforums.org. That'll do it for this week. Come back next time for more words fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. 
This is Chris Lester, signing out. The theme music for The Cuckoo is Last Tango in NYC by The Four Bags and was provided through Medio's Music Alley, the Podsafe Music Network. You can find more of their music at soundcloud.com and thefourbags.com. This podcast and its contents are copyright 2009 and 2015 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.